All right, open your Bibles once again to Romans chapter 3. This morning we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study by looking at verses 25 and 26. But as I always do, let me just be reminded of the previous verses to make sure we understand the context that we are in. As many of you know by now, uh, the Apostle Paul, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and going through chapter 3, verse 20, has very specifically been dealing with the issue of sin, a sin that knows no boundaries, a sin that does not show partiality. In other words, the sin of all mankind. Paul made it very clear in this text that man is a group of depraved individuals. There's no exception. Now, some may ask, well, why would Paul have to explain this to the church in Rome? I mean, why wouldn't they already know these things? Well, you must remember, Paul did not start the church in Rome. Paul started many churches, as you know. Rome was not one of them, nor did he ever have an opportunity to visit there. And so it was very important for him to make sure that they were doctrinally and theologically sound, okay, that's important, as well as to fix some doctrinal error that he knows already exists. For example, we have seen one of them just here in the first couple chapters, And that was how many Jews in the church, we think of that, the church at Rome, many Jews in the church seemed to be confused because they were still holding to this false belief that because they were Abraham's descendants, because they were circumcised according to uh, the covenant, that they were automatically heaven-bound. And therefore, as you know, since we went through this, Paul spent some time and he explained to them that no one is saved, no one is declared righteous because of who you are or by observing the law. Paul made it crystal clear that God did not show favoritism. And therefore, it was the Jews as well as the Gentiles, both sides, if you will, were all under the wrath of God. And by the way, when I say the term Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So that covers literally everyone. Now that being said, after 64 verses of dealing with the subject of sin, we finally came to chapter 3, verse 21, and began where Paul began to share that righteousness is available but that righteousness has nothing to do with their works, and it has everything to do with faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 21, he says that the righteousness that is available is from God. When someone has been born again, not only are their sins forgiven, but God, he says, gives them his righteousness. Okay, This is what we call imputed righteousness. In other words, it is not a righteousness of your own. It is a righteousness that comes from God. Paul then makes it clear in the very next verse, verse 22, that this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 
You might remember even John the Baptist, before Christ really even came on the scene, John the Baptist, he was a forerunner of Christ. You might remember he is out baptizing people, preparing people for the Messiah. He even said in Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe. Those are, by the way, basically two sides of the same coin. But he says, repent and believe the good news. Okay? Many of you, I'm sure, know Ephesians 2.8, right? It is by grace that you have been saved through what? Faith, right? Faith. He talks about faith. And remember, folks, as I stated last week, that your faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed, okay? In other words, I don't care if you are a person of faith, people get labeled that all the time. Well, he's a person of faith. Who cares? This doesn't matter. I don't care if you're, if you're ranked really high on the faith-o-meter. It's irrelevant. What I care about is who your faith is in. Just being a person of faith doesn't do anything for anybody. Who is your faith in? And as it says all throughout Scripture, and of course right here in verse 22, that faith must be in Jesus Christ alone. Not in the Jesus Christ of, of Mormonism, not in the Jesus Christ of the Jehovah's Witnesses, not in the Jesus Christ of Islam. And for that matter, it's not even in the Jesus Christ that's in the minds of people. They create their own view and tag his name onto it as if you, you give them the name Jesus, it's all good. As if anybody named Jesus can be your savior. And of course, that is absolute baloney. Okay? It must be the Jesus Christ that is defined and described here in the Word of God, which as you know is the perfect, sinless Eternal God who wrapped himself in human flesh and he came to this earth in order to die on a cross and pay for the sins of all those who would place their faith or trust in him. Okay? And as Paul goes on, it doesn't matter, he says, who you are. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. You know what he said in verse 23? He said, all have sinned, everyone. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? And that being said, though, he gets on. He goes, but there's good news. Verse 24. He says, even though we are all sin and fall short, yet, guess what? We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Now, folks, that word justify literally means to, to render or to declare righteous. But the important part is, it's not from you. Okay? There's nothing that you can do to declare yourself righteous. There's nothing that you can do to somehow remove your sin and be able to stand righteously before a holy God. Nothing. Zero. Not a thing. Not a person. No one. And that's why Paul says in the same verse, it is freely by his grace. His grace, right? You know what grace is? Grace means it is a gift that is given to men by God for those who believe. Now, that being said, was it free? Sure, it was free to you and me. 
But it wasn't free to Christ. As you know, it cost him his life. Okay? He says here that redemption came through Christ Jesus. Now, that does not mean that he just simply grabbed an eraser and started erasing your sin. I almost used the word chalk, but we don't use chalk anymore these days. But he didn't, he didn't start just erasing your sins, okay? God, as you know, is just, simply meaning that God demands justice, and therefore a price had to be paid for our sin. And as we're going to see in three chapters from now in Romans 6.23, it tells us that, right? For the wages of sin is death. Not physical death, that's going to happen already. Spiritual death, separation from God. That's the wages. Wages is something we earn, isn't it? That's what we're due. Because of our sin, this is what we get, death. Okay? But here's the good news. I said that a price had to be paid. Well, folks, that's what the word redemption means, isn't it? Jesus said, he raised his hand as if you will and says, I will pay that price. I will do it for you. You can't do it on your own. There's nothing we can do, right, to somehow stand righteously before God. He says, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And that, folks, is why Christ died on a cross. See, not for any sin of his own because he had none. He died for you and for me. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Well, at that point last week, we ran out of time. We're not able to finish on Paul's teaching on this, this specific subject matter. And so we're going to do that this morning by looking at verses 25 and 26. TJ, you're right. It's not going to take me three years to finish this. It's going to be a little bit long. I always think of that when you told me that one day. It's like, oh man, it's not going to happen. But verses 25 and 26, let's read those. It says, God presented him, him by the way is Jesus Christ. You'll see there at the end of verse 24. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So drop back with me, if you would, to the first statement there in verse 25. He says, God presented him, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, those words, sacrifice of atonement, it's actually one word in the Greek, uh, are also translated by that old school word that we don't see too much, and that is the word propitiation. Okay? It's also translated, I'm sure, in some of your, in some of your translations. Now, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the same Greek word is used for the lid, or if you will, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, okay? You might also know that as the mercy seat. Some of your translations may say that. So the atonement cover, or if you will, the mercy seat, is what you're going to see in Hebrews, which talks a lot about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, 
We also see that in the Old Testament. Now, as you know, the Old Testament, once a year, there was the day of, there's that word, atonement. Okay? That's when the high priest, as you know, would make a sacrifice on behalf of himself as well as the people of Israel. Let me read that for you, Leviticus 16, verses 14 through 16. He says, he is to take, he meaning the high priest, the high priest is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. That's the curtain to go into the most holy place or the holy of holies. Okay? And at that point, do with it just as he did the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because, listen, because of the uncleanliness and the rebellion, if you will, the sins of the Israelites. Well, he says whatever sins that they have committed. So we see it was because of the uncleanliness, because of the sins of the Israelites. But when the high priest did this, okay, when he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat or on the atonement cover, it was symbolic, okay? In other words, it would symbolize the payment for his own sins and then the sins of the people. Now, I say, I use the word symbolize because remember, the blood of those animals never took away sins. Do you understand that? The blood of all those animals never took away sins. It simply covered them until the next time until that next sacrifice. And this is where the definition comes in for the word atonement, or if you have it, the word propitiation. It simply means to satisfy, or it's also been translated to appease. I'm not a big fan of the word appease, but it, it simply means to satisfy. And so bear in mind, folks, it's God who had to be satisfied. That's important we understand that. In the Old Testament, God was satisfied with the blood of the animals as a covering. Okay? He was satisfied with that as a covering for their sins. Ultimately, hopefully most of you know this, in the plan of God, that sacrifice was to look forward to or point towards that one day coming Messiah who would shed his blood, and he would do so, as you know, not just to cover our sin, but the scriptures tell us that he would take it away. There's a big difference between covering it and taking it away. The day of atonement was simply a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ. It pointed towards, okay, the coming Messiah. Now, if, if in the Day of Atonement, if those sacrifices had taken away their sins, well, they would have stopped, right? But it wasn't until Christ that God was, listen, once and for all satisfied. And Jesus Christ only died once. Okay? 
It wasn't until Christ that he was once and for all satisfied, and that's why Christ died, and he only died once. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25, it tells us, Christ did not enter heaven or offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. But listen to what it says a few verses later in chapter 10, verse 14. He says, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. One sacrifice, done, once and for all. Okay? And so back in verse 25 in Romans, to be able to bring forgiveness once and for all, no more atonement, no more day of atonement, I should say, no more animals, Paul says God presented Jesus as that sacrifice of atonement. Okay? The propitiatory sacrifice was Jesus Christ on the cross because he alone, I say that again, he alone would satisfy God. Okay? He was that propitiatory sacrifice that would satisfy God. Another scripture from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. He says, day after day, every priest stands and he performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. Listen, which can never, he says, take away sins. This is why I said that earlier. He offers the same sacrifices day after day, which can never take away sins. But then he says, when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had come, he offered for one time one sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. Folks, you know why Jesus sat down? It's because he was done. It's because he was finished. Remember the old hymn? What does it say? Jesus paid it, what? All. Jesus paid it all, right? God was, quote, satisfied. There's that word, right? God was satisfied completely with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as he was the perfect lamb, unblemished, without sin. Remember, it had to be that way in the Old Testament, right? You couldn't throw up a, a lamb with a broken leg or had one eye or anything else. It had to be the perfect lamb. Jesus, of course, was the lamb of God, perfect, unblemished, without sin. Nobody else, folks, nobody else could have died for you and me. Nobody else was qualified. None. Zero. See? But when Jesus died... Remember when Jesus was on the cross, his very last words before it says he gave up his spirit were, it is finished, right? It is finished. In other words, what that means is the debt has been paid in full. It's finished. It's done. Secondly, in verse 25, Paul says, this is through faith in his blood. Now, we already talked about faith fairly in depth in verse 22, so I am not going to cover that again. I think we covered it pretty well. 
And so uh, if you, for some reason, weren't here that week, certainly go back and, and hear that sermon. But here Paul says, through faith in his blood. Now, there are some people out there, for those of you who follow these things like I have for probably 30 years, there are some of those out there who go a little bit nuts over the term, the blood of Jesus. Okay? But generally speaking, okay, the blood of Christ is an expression that is used in reference to, listen to the words, the sacrificial sacrifice. Get the word sacrifice. It's used in expression as the sacrificial character of his death. Okay? When it says the blood of Christ, it's talking about him being the sacrifice, the sacrificial character of his death. Later, just a few chapters now, chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath to come? And this is where I kind of speak to those who go kind of nuts with these things. Um, Were we actually justified by his actual blood? Were we justified by what flowed from his body? The answer is no. We were justified by, by what happened, which caused his blood to flow. Okay? You understand that? Which was his death. On the final Passover, as you know, we talk about this as we deal with communion. The final Passover before Jesus' death Remember that? Jesus says, this is a new covenant in my blood, right? The old covenant was with the blood of the animals, right? What happened to those animals? They were sacrificed. They were killed, every one of them. None of them had their blood drawn. They were killed, okay? This is a new covenant in my blood. Blood was a euphemism for the death of Christ, Jesus was about, as you know, when he was there at that that Passover, what was about to happen? Jesus was going to go to the cross and die, wasn't he? That's absolutely what was going to take place. He was not getting ready to bleed. He was getting ready to go to the cross and die. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life that was handed down to you. He says, listen, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter folks, he describes Christ as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. As I just mentioned, we we know those from the Old Testament, right? He just described Jesus as the ultimate sacrificial lamb who was offered in our place to pay the price for our sin. Okay? Remember those words. He's a sacrificial lamb. Listen, folks, as precious as the blood of Jesus is, the physical blood, the physical blood could not save you and me. It was only when it was poured out in death could the penalty of sin be paid. The blood was shed as it was poured out in his death. Okay? 
The blood of Jesus Christ is not pointing towards or putting emphasis on the literal fluid that came from his body. It is on the entirety of his atoning sacrificial death. It's the fact that Christ's blood was shed in his death. If I'm wrong on that issue, and I'm not, If I'm wrong on that issue, why wouldn't Jesus simply cut himself? Well, Darren, that's that's just stupid. You're right. It is. If you were there when I taught through the Gospel of Mark, we hit a section there where Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? This was right before he was going to do what? Die and go to the cross, right? You might remember, and I remember teaching this, this was a horrific time at the Garden of Gethsemane. Horrific time that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. Until I studied that and taught it, I I never recognized it, what he actually went through in the Garden. MacArthur actually points out, he says, apart from the cross itself, there was no greater agony has ever been experienced by any human being who has ever lived in this world in human form. No man has ever suffered that way, as he did in the garden, okay? While there in the garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, Father, take this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will, right? He was saying there, Lord, is there any other way that sin could be dealt with outside of my death, Is there anything, is there, is there any other way that we can do this instead of me dying and hanging on a cross? He didn't talk about his bleeding. Remember what I said earlier? Jesus said, it is finished. The debt has been paid. When did he say that? When he died. His very last words before he gave up his spirit was, it is finished. The debt, our sinful debt, has been paid when he died. It wasn't earlier. Jesus had definitely bled earlier. They beat him to a pulp. He was unrecognizable. They put a a crown of thorns on his head, and we're talking thorns that are like this long. He bled way before his death. If that was the case, then why, why did he go to the cross? Because he had to die. The wages of sin is death. See? Hope you understand all that. I went through all that because there are people out there who will just, once again, go nuts and you can read all kinds of stuff. There's a, a bowl in heaven with the blood of Jesus in it right now and just, there's, you know, <laughs> there's just a lot of things. And so it's not, as, it's not that you're... you're uh, You're putting down the blood, but it's what it means, what it signifies, what Jesus had to do, okay? All right, with the time we have left, we got about another hour. Um, All right, I'm just kidding you people. Um, But with that time, let's look at the second half of verse 25 and as well as verse 26. He says, he did this, to demonstrate his justice. 
because in his forbearance, in God's forbearance, he left the sins that were committed unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, before we take a look at what Paul is talking about here, I think it's important just to real quick to remember the word just or the word justice. Now, he actually uses this same word three times in these two verses. Now, before some of you start looking at me weird, you might have the translation of righteousness. Okay, you might have a translation, instead of saying just, it says righteousness. One of the ways that this word, the Greek word, can be defined is God's judicial righteousness. Judicial is important. God's judicial righteousness, which is simply to say he is just. Okay? Let's say you had a friend. Let's, let's say uh, you have a friend or a relative who was brutally murdered. Thankfully, they caught the person who did it. You go to the trial. And there the man is. The judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? And he says, you know, I, I, I've recognized now that I did was wrong. Shouldn't have done it. And I want you to know, judge, I'll never do it again. I'm sorry. The judge goes, you know what? I, I think, I, I think you're, you're, you're serious about that. I think, I think you are Sorry. And so because of the, the anguish you yourself have to go through now for taking another life, I feel you've, you've, you've done enough. I'm going to let you go. Can you imagine the upheaval <laughs> in the courtroom? Can you imagine what was going on? You know why? That ain't justice. That guy deserves to get put away, right? That's not being just. He deserves whatever you think, the death penalty, prison, you know, whatever, Folks, because of God's nature, he must be seen as righteous, hence the word just, while at the same time handing down the penalty for sin, which, as you know, is death, isn't it? So what did he do? He did what might seem to be absolutely horrendous. God gave the life of his sinless son. Sinless. He didn't deserve anything. He didn't deserve death. He didn't deserve any punishment for whatsoever. But God offered up his son, his sinless son. For some people, that is, that is outrageous. Yet that one death, that one sacrifice allowed for the forgiveness of an innumerable amount of people revealing his righteousness. Does that make sense to you? Revealing his justice. As one commentator says, God's divine dilemma, I don't like to put the word God in dilemma because God doesn't really get into a dilemma, but I'm just going to quote him. God's divine dilemma was how to satisfy his righteousness and its demands against sinful people, and at the same time, how to demonstrate his grace, 
his love and his mercy to restore rebellious, alienated creatures from himself. How can I do both? How can I make sure that that man gets the penalty for his sin? Like the guy who was in court who killed that friend. At the very same time, try to bring about a relationship between himself and all those sinners. To you and me, that's quite a quandary, isn't it? (laughs) Well, how does this all fit? Well, he says in verse 25 that God did this, meaning God allowed Jesus to be a sacrifice of atonement. What does he say? To demonstrate his justice. And then he says, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That word forbearance simply means to hold back. Vincent says it's kind of like a truce, okay? Listen, because God was temporarily satisfied with the animal sacrifices, we know he was, by the way, they were from his decree. He's the one that told him to do it. But because God was temporarily satisfied with the animal sacrifices, his wrath never fell upon all those sins. He held back. Do you see what I'm saying? His forbearance, he held back his wrath because he was satisfied with them being covered through the animal sacrifices. But as I read earlier from Hebrews chapter 10, those animal sacrifices could never take away sins. Couldn't happen, didn't happen. And therefore, for God to be just those sins that were committed beforehand that were unpunished before Christ came and died, right? Think of the Old Testament, okay? They would still have to be punished. They never received their just punishment, see? The point is, how could God be just if he just let those sins go without any punishment? You, you, right? How could he be just? And therefore, verse 26, we'll close here, and he says, He did it. He allowed Christ to be sacrificed as an atonement to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, number one, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So based on this specific text, two things happened. Okay? Two things were accomplished at the cross. I'm not saying that's theological or, or um, you know, there's not more to it. But in our text, he's saying two things happened. Because of God's justice, the sins that were committed beforehand did not go unpunished. Okay? And because of his grace, no sin is beyond forgiveness. See? Notice he called Jesus just, or God just, and called him the justifier. He's just, he's also the one who justifies. He is just by dealing with the sins that were committed before the cross, verse 25, and after the cross. When Jesus died, it took care of the sins before and after, okay? 
because that one very same act, the cross of Jesus, he justifies those whose faith is in himself. He punished the sins that had to be punished, otherwise he wouldn't be just. At the very same time, he justified those who put their faith in him. Those very same sinners who the punishment was for. You see what I'm saying? By the one act of Jesus' sacrificial death, God was considered just because he punished the sin and the justifier. Because sin was punished, through faith, you and I, anybody out there can be declared righteous. That's what the word justify means. It means to be declared righteous. It is an amazing uh, couple of verses to put together what had to take place. Jesus, God, is not unjust. He is just. So the sins had to be paid for. But I want to reconcile myself. I, want, I don't want to send everybody to hell, which everybody deserved, right? But he didn't. That's why Jesus died. So now I've got to pay for the sins and try to reconcile men to myself, those very same people who caused those sins. It's an amazing act of, of mercy and justice on behalf of God. He does it both. It's an interesting, interesting text. But it's like I said when we started this book, there's going to be doctrine, there's going to be some theology that happens that things we don't always talk about at Bible studies or read about, but it's amazing what, what God had to do. But he did it, and of course, he did it perfectly. He took our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. It is it is an amazing, amazing feat. So we praise the Lord for that today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. You know, Lord, when texts like this kind of go beyond our normal thinking of what, of what you had to do, because you couldn't just do anything to make people feel good because you are just. You cannot go against your own nature. You are righteous. And Lord, we thank you that you are in control of this and not ourselves because, as I just said, we all deserved death. The wages of sin is death. And Lord, it's amazing that you took that upon yourself. You punished it. At the very same time, you want to forgive us. It goes both ways. How would that happen in today's courtroom? We, we don't know. But the courtroom of heaven, we understand and we're grateful that that is the love of Christ. Here, I'll take your sin, and I want to forgive you both ways. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done. Thank you for these, these kinds of things that, that kind of go on behind the scenes. They're more theological, but, Lord, they're, they're great to think about because it puts our focus on you and your character and what you've done, and it takes us off of ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for all the things you do, if you will, behind the scenes that we don't quite understand but uh, it helps us to certainly see, as we mentioned this morning, that you are sovereign. You are in control, and, and you have things taken care of. And Lord, we are blessed because of it. And we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.